Hello, Nina. Hello. How are you today? I'm okay. I uh, did that thing again where I ate too much candy. It happens. And now I feel hungover. But one day I will learn my lesson. One day. One day. Candy was it this time. What did I eat? What didn't I eat? I had a lot of macaroons. The coconut kind, not the like fancy French kind. I love the I love the coconut chocolate macaroon. I mm-hmm. love that cookie. Yeah, let's go on. And mm-hmm. then I had some M and M's, and then mm-hmm. I had some fun size candy left over somehow from Halloween. So apparently, I knew moderation back in October. So I had like a little Twix, I had a little Snickers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had a really good homemade or like like bakery made Malamar, and I had never had a Malamar before. And it was really good. Just like get another it. another shout out to Gwen. She changed Gwen. my life in many ways, but with that cookie, really changed my life. As I was saying, I, I remember Harry Met Sally when I was a very young child and how Billy Crystal said it was the greatest cookie known to mankind. And I was like, I've never heard of it. You know, I don't know her. All right. So this week we're going to start, we're going to, we're going to do it. So we're going to start with Ethiopiques, which was Mina's mm-hmm. recommendation to me. And as expected, I loved it. Oh, yay. Yeah, no, it's so good. I mean, it's just, I feel like it's as immediately appealing as almost music can can kind of be. Yeah, I mean, sorry, I feel like my OA was like, like connotated that I thought you were going to hate this. I didn't think you were going to hate this, but I'm just excited that you like it. But no, it was really good, really melodic, really, uh, really atmospheric. Atmospheric is maybe the wrong word, but it has a lot of shifting moods. Like, I think that's one thing I noticed in my first go through is I felt it had a really great sense of narrative. I was listening to it for the first time. Like I was kind of just put it on when I was working, but I did just notice that at one point as it was nearing the end and it's kind of, I think it's right next to, it's like maybe the last song or the next to last song. I don't know. It's a really sweet kind of like almost, it's like a love song. I would describe it, even mm-hmm. though I'm not sure it has lyrics, but I just felt a real sense of calm and resolution. I was just like, oh. I feel like each of the songs had like a fair amount of solitude. I think some songs like straight up sound lonely and some of those are my favorite. Mm-hmm. I like it. My yeah. favorite song is uh, Muna Ye, My Muna. Oh yeah, um, that one is good. I, oh God, I really like it. Like if you were to give me like a really nice summer day, like a few city blocks mm-hmm. and like me and a new top, like, yeah, like I would just feel like I'd be walking with like the speed of a protagonist. Like you couldn't say shit to me, <laughs> nor would anyone want to because the song would just make the day so great. Everyone would be great. I feel all these songs are like pretty, I mean, they're pretty accessible. Like, I mean, like they, to me, I think you can listen to them and like, I think they have um, a certain structure. Like, it's not quite like, I don't think of like of a lot of jazz where, you know, there are these extended solos or, you know, where things are often more challenging, I think, to to people who are not just used to pop music, you know, I think where you're like, oh, what is this and why am I listening to it? And even later, he talks about the radio show he has um, and where he kind of used it to educate sort of the people of Ethiopia to like what jazz was and how to listen to it, because they were just like, what is this and why is there a solo? What I think of like 60s jazz is like it's sort of stopped being popular music. Like up through World War II, it was like big bands. It was just like it was mm-hmm. like good time fun music. But by the 50s and 60s, you have like Charlie Parker, you have, you know, Thelonious Monk uh, and Miles Davis. And they're all kind of moving. I mean, they were just all mostly just like straight up just composers. And I think who saw themselves as composers um, and were moving away from jazz as being a pop form. You know, they, that wasn't really what they were interested in. So what you mean in terms of like, like in those kind of, with those artists of jazz, like mm-hmm. songs being more challenging, do you mean just like in length or in just um, 
like they're often long yes but i mean the love supreme is like you know oh god it's a concerto i think um so mostly just like it's like moving towards the avant-garde mm. you know it's just like um so like a love supreme i think brilliant corners is a, like it's Thelonious monks one from 56 i was trying to look up some I mean, because actually, like, kind of blue by Miles Davis is not really what I would call like, a really challenging album. I think you listen to it and you're like, I love it. Um, so that's one thing. They are very popular albums. Like, A Love Supreme also has sold a million copies, but they just aren't poppy. And I do think, and they aren't really, or at least, I mean, I could be wrong, so I want to be clear to our listeners, but they aren't necessarily as interested in relating to what the popular music of the time was. Mm. And I think what's here, have you hear like elements of soul and elements of funk and things? There's a use of a Hammond organ in what is it? It's um, Yegele Tezeta, which made me think of uh, it's Green Onions, which is a, a song like I think one of the popular instrumental pop songs, um, I think in U.S. history, um, that also has a Hammond organ that goes all the way through it. And so I just don't think or associate necessarily being like, oh, I'm listening to this jazz, but I'm also thinking of like this Motown song. I'll send you an article too, and we can link it in our episode notes. That so a lot, particularly. Um, that song you mentioned, the Yigel Tezeta, mm-hmm. and it has a parenthesis, uh, My Own Memory. That's been I mean, sampled a lot in mm-hmm. rap. I can um, see why. Yeah, and then I realized, so I found this article um, from a site called OK Africa, and it does mm-hmm. a lot about like hip hop, R&B, and like a lot of like the music and diaspora. Um, so they have like a whole list of songs of, it's not just a stocky, but it's other, like Ethiopian jazz musicians and like mm-hmm. the ways that their songs have been sampled by rappers. So like Common, mm-hmm. um, see Common, Kanye West, Jay-Z mm-hmm. and they're like, yeah. So it's really interesting just to hear them in the way. Yes. No, yeah. I can very much see that. Cause I know I was also, this is me trying again to think through my very rudimentary understanding about jazz is cause like jazz has also been sampled. Like I was thinking of like a tribe called Quest and, and has oh, sort right. of appeared yeah, mm-hmm. throughout in a lot of different ways. So um but yeah, so to me, it just seemed like an interesting thing that I just, it had all these sort of, what I think of as more, I don't know, not contemporary sounds, but it just seemed like an interesting mix of eras to me. But I think that's just because of like the shifting timelines um, of like when Ethiopia or like when he came to America, like he came in what, 1958, I think he says in that article, um, he talks about what music was being played in Ethiopia, how it was like, like James Brown was really huge so that there would be these American songs that would be present. So just thinking about like the different things that I'm hearing in there that do feel to me like almost, I think I had kept them separate. Like, And also that interview that was really interesting um, where he's talking about a lot of the traditional like Ethiopian instruments were not, um, they were not loud enough for people to actually hear them. So recordings became more important, but also like amplifying. So instruments that could pick up like electric guitars were kind of like used, um, not necessarily as like a complete substitution, but like were used more. So I think that like influences sound where you hear. Yeah, so just like, I was like, oh, yeah. so many guitars. Yeah, like it's. It's just interesting, like the problem's like, well, people can't hear this. So we gotta like, you know, if this was like traditionally for like this harp instrument, then we'll just like put that line on the guitar so people can hear mm-hmm. it. Hear it. It's yeah. just, yeah, it's so cool. Yeah, I think that's great. Yeah, so anyway, so no, it's really good. Everyone should listen to it. He has a lot of other albums. Oh, he has so much. It's like, get that Spotify, just, get the most yeah. for your Spotify subscription. We can look up his primal astrology animal if we want to. Oh, let's do it. <laughs> Astake is a tortoise. Oh, hmm. I mean, that seems, I would like to be a tortoise maybe. It's a pretty good animal.
we're now going to discuss Paris, Texas, which was my recommendation for you last week, um, which is a film from 1984 by Vim Vendors. There are things in this film that I really, really like. This is related to, yeah. I guess, what we're talking about in terms of like this, the quality and like engine of myth in this film mm-hmm. is that, and again, I there are some things in this film I really love, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's like question marks for me because mm-hmm. there is something as like this film, I think as soon as we separate Travis, the man who's been like wandering the desert for like who knows how long Mm -hmm. as soon as we start separating him from this kind of western mythology and the landscape and we start actually learning about him as a person Mm -hmm. and the scene where he um reunites with jane his ex-wife and he's recounting what happened like what Mm -hmm. the event that sparked their separation why he like lost his mind and like went into this kind of Mm -hmm. state and it's horrific. It's like as yeah. soon as you start separating, like when the man becomes more of a man and like he becomes less of this mythic figure of like, you know, he's he's the West, he's mysterious, he has this quality of like independence and abandonment and danger. But then once you start getting like into the details of what happened between these two characters, the way that shot, it's amazing. Like it's really well done. It's beautiful to watch. But the content, there's so many... I guess, details of extreme. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that like this film puts Travis in this figure as we're learning of like how abusive he was, how dangerous he was to his wife and child. Mm-hmm. And then he gets to apologize the way that he wants to. He gets to make amends in the way that he thinks is right. And the film I think has is supporting him in this way. And the way that he gets to leave with like that same like Western, we were talking about the music, the same kind of twinniness. The The film is like, I feel like it's not necessarily like I have, we have to come down to a judgment, but I think the film is painting his amends, his sacrifice of reuniting his son with his mother. I think the film wants it to be within this, like back into the myth of man where like, this is, he is, sacrificing like this is an act of love this is an act of sacrifice but he must go and be alone and it's this kind of myth of like especially in terms of like self-belief and the way that we think of in terms of like mm-hmm. the masculine man or the masculine identity that I just think is bullshit I just don't know how to feel about it because the film the way the mm-hmm. film ends and we learn so much like the last 20 minutes of that film are you learn so much it's like we're primarily most of the interaction between two characters like happens at a prolonged scene where mm-hmm. most of the dialogue is honestly so it's just so interesting to me that you know it's like no like Travis like you're a bad man <laughs> and this film and you are being indulged like the way you get to make amends is through the generosity of others through your family through your brother mm-hmm. through your sister-in-law through your son through your wife who honestly like as you're learning about their history, like she should have run. Yeah. Like she should be running. So yeah, I agree, especially watching the second time. I think I had also just forgotten some of the details of like that last scene where he's explaining things because it does just mm-hmm. lead to a point where you're like, dear God. Well, he's um, I think my main issue is like the film is very indulgent and forgiving with Travis. And I'm not saying it shouldn't be. I'm not making that judgment. Like that's bad art. I'm not doing that. But mm-hmm. pairing that with this myth of like, the Western landscape and like man and this like, you know, the desert, 
there's some kind of dissonance between the two that doesn't that either I'm not I'm not getting Mm -hmm. or I just feel like it doesn't the conversation between those two things is muddled for me okay before we go any further let's give our listeners some context Travis is found in the desert his brother is contacted his brother comes and gets him and then his brother has to reveal that like since his disappearance because they thought he was dead he and his wife have adopted Travis's son and they've been living in LA so they go to LA there's this kind of reunion between brothers as they make a road trip back to LA and then there's this kind of feeling out between Hunter and Travis as they become ultimately closer much to Anne's discomfort while um, his sister-in-law and then um, Anne reveals that she knows where Jane is and with that information Travis takes Hunter to go back to Texas to Houston to find Jane and then Travis kind of makes like he's making this plan that he's going to reunite his son with Jane and then you learn what happened you learn that he was incredibly abusive he and like the abuse kind of escalates to the point where he puts cowbells on her ankles so he can hear whether she moves and gets up to leave like absolutely psychotic and then he chains her to or ties her to the stove and their son and she escapes somehow and it's implied that she sets the whole place on fire fire. yeah Yeah. to leave and then so you think about like how they left things but yeah so as you get these details and then automatically there's just like this for me there's this vacuum where it's like okay the myth is gone and you just have this incredibly shitty man and as I'm talking about it now, I'm like, the film is intending this, I guess. And now I don't know what I think. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think to some extent they, they do. The ending drives me crazy. Or just yeah. the music, the music, yeah. the, like the, what they're implying with. It's the way he frames why he's leaving. That is an act of love. It is an act of sacrifice. And that's not necessarily that the film is saying this. I think like Travis very much believes that. But I do think the film contends that everything that has happened like all the history, all the violence, all the abuse, that somehow it has affected Travis more than anyone else, more than his yeah. son who was abandoned, more than his wife that, I, that was most burdensome to him. I do think the film intends that. It's like building of a myth and then the myth gets pulled out from under at the end. But like the video, like the Super 8 film that they watch, mm-hmm. that is where like Hunter is supposed to be like three. But like, if you listen to the story later at the end, it's like terrible things were happening at this time. You know, it wasn't like this great time where they all were at the coast and went fishing and Hunter looks adorable. I mean, I guess like we should say that throughout it, like there are these things like that. Like there's the film they watch, there's the pictures they look through. There's kind of a very sense of looking back on a time before with certain eyes um, and certainly like mythologizing, but also maybe seeing more clearly in some way. Like there's also like the scene where Hunter is like, oh, were you a general? And he's like, no, I was in the marching band. The characters can't communicate with each other without some kind of aid. And that's why the film, a lot of the film's silence is that when you do have two characters who just don't have, you know, any instrument between them, it is silent. Mm-hmm. So you have like the walkie talkies, you have like the phone booth window system through the peekaboo room in the strip club. You have Travis does report oh, yeah. like the thing for mm-hmm. Hunter, which also is another, again, just an insane thing to tell like a eight year old boy to record it thing. Yeah. Like, Sorry, I cannot be your dad. 
because I messed it up. You know, sometimes you watch a movie and like the movie and the camera are bringing attention to itself all the time. And it's kind of irritating. And you're like, why are you doing this? Whereas I feel like this is full of interesting choices being made that you're like, ooh, you know, like that serve functions. And I feel like are not just to draw attention to the fact that like, hey, I have a camera and I have made choices. It oh, is. it's, I mean, it's beautifully shot. It's, beautiful, it's a beautiful yeah. film. There's some shots I really love. I love the shot of when Travis first gets to LA and, and into his brother's house, but it's a shot of Anne and him looking up the stairs mm-hmm. and then Hunter's looking down at them. And that's yeah. like the first shot of the reunion. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. I feel like I've been talking a lot. Is there like, what do you no. like? What do you think? What do you, I mean, what do you like I, about this? Film? I, really, I mean, I think it's just like, I mean, it's also a film that like, sometimes I don't want to be like, oh, we see so many Hollywood movies all the time, but where everything has been very like, even if you don't agree with all the choices, they've made so many choices and have thought it through in such a very clear way about like the shots. Like I think the number of times also, like there's so many mediated, like, you know, some kind of mechanical intervention so that people can communicate with each other. But there are also so many shots where it's like a close-up of someone that also has like something in the distance. Like there's always this intimacy and this great distance. Like for instance, like I know there's one where I think early on Travis is maybe he's driving, but I don't know, but you can just see all the cars coming. And there are a lot of times, I think one of Hunter where you can also just see like, you know, the, the highways, like the freeways of LA that are in almost the background of like every scene. But so I so believe I it's I-10. Like, I-10, I was like, which one is it? Which one is it, Nina? <laughs> um, so yeah, so I think, so on some level, I think it's just like aesthetic, I mean, aesthetically. So Anne has told Travis about Jane being in Houston. Mm-hmm. And then Travis takes a walk around LA and like, as he's walking around, the film puts this music behind him that has included ambient street noise. Mm-hmm. So you kind of think of it as kind of like a B-roll sound. And then as he's like approaching this highway overpass, the music fades and it's just the sound of a man screaming. Yes. At first you think like, I was like, oh, this is part, like, you know, it's this man like screaming about a conspiracy, a warning. And he's like, it's a emphatic warning, you know, he sounds in a lot of distress. But then you see Travis continuing his way over the overpass and he, there is an actual, like there's a man screaming on the bridge. Oh, I just, oh, I love that. Like, I really want the, I really want to read this screenplay just for that scene. Cause I love mm-hmm. the way that shot, I love the way Travis encounters that man and the way he, that he walks away. And then he, even like, there's something. And he pats him on the back as he. Yeah, leaves. he like, and I, it's like unclear to me if he actually makes contact, which I love, mm-hmm. you know, and this man is, there's some point where he is yelling like, they will expedite you. Yes. And there's something. Oh the God, land like of no return or something. I don't know. It's yeah. It's... Yeah. It's like, I'm warning you before it's too late. And he's just like screaming his head off for like for a highway. Like no one's going to, I just love everything of the way the scenes composed. And also I love that in the credits of that film, that man is credited as screaming man. I love every scene in the strip club in Houston, but the peekaboo rooms, like I love the way they're labeled. Like mm-hmm. I think one was Poolside, like poolside. hotel this is where I'm like uh Wes Anderson all over this but just like the framing and the the sense of miniature and like artifice in terms of environment and Mm -hmm. placing these characters who are traumatized in these kind of stage like atmosphere or stage like environment where they're both being view of each other or like there's some sense of performance right first shot we see of Walt is where he's on the phone and it appears he's in front of a building but no it's like a billboard of a building and the uh-huh. idea of reproduction, reproduction, because there's ideas of reproduction everywhere, like all the billboards, all those peekaboo rooms, like everything is sort of artifice. <laughs> it's so good. It's so it's good. It's really good, yeah. Do you love that scene when the, 
the woman who's cleaning the house is giving him mm-hmm. tips on like yeah. how to be a father. Yeah. That's a really mm-hmm. good scene. It's a good scene. No, it is really good. I, guess, I like that one. I guess I like this movie. The more I'm talking about this, more I'm like there's a lot of stuff that's really good about this. I do I like do I love this film? Mm-hmm. I, I really enjoy that like there's a I like I like the process that you're going through. Where I'm like, where, where I first come up, I'm like, no, this is bad. And then I'm yeah, I just find the ending really frustrating. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think the ending is something that, like, if this film were made today, it wouldn't do. I don't know, but I do feel like on some level, the ending is this thing that comes along, but it's also been built up through by all these things that we love about it, and it is so great. Mm-hmm. Um, but that also that Jane is just so absent for all of it, and then she gets this very, like, minimal time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, like, and I'm not saying that, like, Travis should not have left. Like, I, I like, yeah, he should, like, I think he should leave. Yeah. By uh, the way it's framed, I don't think. But with the, I with the score with. from Rai Cooter and like acting as though he is literally John Wayne going back out into the. Yeah, where she's like, no, nah, man, like one, you kidnapped your son. You brought you him out of a stable son. home. Put him with someone who has seemingly herself said she cannot care for him. The actress who plays Jane, I think, is incredible. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting to see like when she starts realizing that this man could be Travis and then hearing his point of view on their history together and this is also before you like the more horrific details come but you can see mm-hmm. her face like yeah she's just no she's really she's really good she's really, really great in that scene well he can't even look at her when he's still like he turns, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah we should be clear in both cases both of them like even though they can sort of see each other in some way they turn away from each other when they both are explaining what they have done or did or, or whatever it's so good it's very good. I mean, it's just like, I don't know, like, or even all, even some of those shots where like, you're seeing from behind him, but like his face reflected is actually like kind of covering hers up in certain places. Like the way no, it's her. Yeah. Yeah. It's his face in her like outline and yeah, like the, it's, yeah, it's so good. God, that whole scene is so good. It's just, sorry, this is such a minor thing, but again, what's up with Anne? Because she encourages <laughs> She's very worried in some scenes, mostly just with Walt. She's very worried about Travis and mm-hmm. the effect it's having on Hunter and like motivations of Walter. Like what what is he trying to like convey to his son? But at the same time, she's like, of course, Travis should go to the school and you guys and should walk home and together. Yeah. And it's like, no, when you have a prodigal figure like that and you have them at the school like that definitely like I was like he's kidnapping this guy like I like like it's that very first scene where he's waiting across the street from the school I'm like and Hunter's getting kidnapped eventually yeah, and no, Anne it's... like Anne is worried about it but at the same time she's encouraging this interaction <laughs> understanding of how this movie was written was it was sort of written I don't know on the fly but they didn't quite know what was going to happen and so they may also just be shifting her character as the needs of the film I get that and also like just overall like the women in this film are not very well developed she has like a flatness that I think is very similar to like all of the ways that Ernest Hemingway writes women you know she has that kind of flatness where she's like oh oh no Mm -hmm. and then you know silent tears so yeah anyway Paris Texas I think it I think people should watch it and then if you do watch it please let Please us know. talk. Yeah, yeah, talk to me about it because I think I'm having. I think I, as I get closer, this our conversation is like pushing me towards something that would probably be important for me to realize as a writer. But yeah, I think I like it. I think I might love it.
Sanders is a peacock. Oh, good for him. <laughs>